Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I've been as excited going into a podcast interview as I was when going into this conversation with Dr. Dwight Turner. So I apologize in advance if I'm like fangirling a little bit, but you know, he's in my field and his book really moved me. You'll hear all about it because I, I talk a lot about why I like his book. He's um, a senior lecturer with within the School of Applied Social Science at the University of Brighton. He lectures in their courses in counseling and psychotherapy, and he's also a PhD supervisor in their doctoral college. He's also a practicing psychotherapist, which is oftentimes unusual for people in the sort of doctoral college to still be seeing clients, but it gives Dr. Turner a, a lens on this topic. So his book is called Intersections of Privilege, and Otherness in Counseling and Psychotherapy. It was just released in February 2021. He's an activist. He's a writer. He's a public speaker on issues of race, difference, and intersectionality. But there is a way that he is going to open your lens and turn you on to this topic, not close your lens and turn you off, because he does not use shame or indicting people. He uses this depth and soul to get into this. Oh, my word. Just please go get this book. (laughs) I'm so excited about it. All right. Without further ado, Dr. Dwight Turner. All right, Dr. Dwight Turner, do you know how excited I am to geek out with you? (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure to meet with you this morning. Brilliant. I'm so excited. So first of all, you have, you're not just a professor, you're not just a psychologist, you're also seeing clients as well. You're a practicing clinician that actually has psychotherapy clients come into your office. You kind of do it all. And I imagine that changes your lens when you're writing, when you're working with students. So bring us into your world a little bit and tell us tell us about your work. Sure, sure. Well, I, I'm fortunate enough to be at a stage of my career where I can split my practice into two, my work into two, two slots. So the first part of the week is normally me seeing clients, um, like you mentioned. So I, I do a lot of my client work. And then the rest of the week is actually me working with students at the University of Brighton, lecturing on a psychodynamic course in psychotherapy uh, here in the south coast of England. And you're quite right. It, it, it's, it's a good shift for me to move from the more... Um, clinical understanding of human nature to then actually be able to filter some of that through to working with students and bringing, bringing forth the next generation, I'm going to call it that, of clinicians. So it's a, it's a nice balancing act for myself on a personal level. It's great self-care as well, because I've done the working full-time for the four or five days a week as a psychotherapist. It's fine, but I'm t- sort of tired of that. And it also gives me the chance to actually write about what I'm left with from working with clients and students, from my perspective, at the end of the week, for example. Yeah. 
How long have you been doing it? Uh, I qualified in 2004. I, I qualified out of the Centre for Counseling and Psychotherapy Education, the CCPE, which is based in London. Um, I worked originally for a charity in South East London, working with, with uh, hard to reach communities down in South East London for a while. Then after their funding was cut, sadly, they moved into private practice and have been in private practice for about oh, 14 years, I think really since then. So a good length of time. So uh, I got to tell you something funny. I remember when I started grad school, I didn't know what psychodynamics was. You were just talking about how you teach psychodynamics. And so yeah. I called my faculty advisor and I said, what is psychodynamics? He goes, well, it's, it's kind of like a study of the unconscious and our interactions and Freud. Mm. I went, oh man, I think Freud is full of crap. Mm. <laughs> and he said, huh, that's interesting. He said, I'm one of the leading researchers in the United States on Sigmund Freud. I said, well, I feel like a real asshole now. And he goes, and I think it's really funny how much anal retentive language you use. <laughs> so he had you pegged from straight away, didn't he? <laughs> well, so, I mean, this is interesting because we're taught yeah. your book yeah, yeah. is really about otherness and privilege. And I, I'm going to be much more upfront in the conversation than just listening today because I'm so geeking out with you. But oh. Freud has turned me off because sometimes when I meet with psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapists, I can feel a power differential that's very off-putting where I feel like there's this chin scratchy. Let me mm -hmm. analyze your unconscious mm. and tell you what's wrong with you. Mm. And yet... I have come the other way. Halfway through my career, I joined a psychoanalytic consultation group mm -hmm. because there is so much happening in the unconscious and your book mm. takes this up. So I'm just curious, why did you write this book? And, and how is this whole othering happening in what you and I do with clients day in and day out? Sure, sure. That's a very good question. I think it's worth understanding that I, similar to yourself, I was, wasn't a big Freud fan when I started out because I actually trained on an integrative course, which had a, an integrative transpersonal course, which had a real grounding in the work of Carl Jung, and especially his more sort of working with the unconscious, working with archetypes, working with, with the creative, um, and how that is a way of accessing through the body, the unconscious uh, internalized experience of whatever it is we've been through in life. Right, so, you know, using things like sand play and drawing and visualizations. These were things I, I, I used a lot actually in my research to explore that deeper understanding. The more psychodynamic work, I think for myself in a way, came about during my doctorate. Because then I had to go back and understand how transference and counter-transference actually plays a huge role, one with my clients, and two in the power differential between um, subject and object if you want to go down through privilege or, or, or others and how we can actually do it to ourselves as well things like projective identification which are sort of semi-contested terms in psychodynamic literature were i've written about them in the book are very important to understand how we create an other and in doing so we enforce we encourage cajole force that other to actually act out whatever it is that we don't want to own of ourselves that we don't want, but that we, we, we've chosen to repress and pushed out to somebody else. Mm. Other people think, well, you can't make somebody else do something about all that sort of stuff. I sort of think you kind of can, because you, in, it's in the dehumanization of otherness that then projective identification becomes relevant, in my mm -hmm. view. 
Um, There's a whole bunch of folks listening to this podcast, and I know I've invited you down this path that don't know what any of these terms mean. Sure, so sure. In, in, in simplified language, can we define transference and counter-transference and PI? Sure. Uh, transference, uh, just simply put, is when we take a past experience that we perhaps is repeating itself in, in our unconscious, and we play it out in the present. It's a bit like finding, it's a bit like when we win, the one I always use with my students is when you find yourself dating the same type of person over and over again, let's say, okay, <clears throat> my partner's very narcissistic or whatever else, I don't know why I keep dating narcissists. The transferential part is, or was your parent, father, mother, narcissistic, self-centered, whatever it might be, because that's what transference means. Counter-transference is, is how the therapist experiences that. Am I then being, if I'm working with a client and they've had that sort of experience, am I then being pulled into playing out a more self-centered role in the therapy than I would normally do? It's become all about myself. I feel like I need to self-disclose or act out in some way, um, therefore losing the client. And projection and projection identification, identification sort of go together in a way in that we often can project, it's a bit like, you know, I might fear that you know, somebody, you know, let's say, one that I always get as a projection is, well, I'm the authority with my students. And therefore, you know, people see me as authority, they act out in, in a way with that, with that authority figure. Okay, now I've got to hold that projection fine until my students feel old enough on their course to then take it back. Mm -hmm. But if they've had a negative experience of an authority figure, then they may try and, um, not consciously, it's often with subtle sort of, you know, words or whatever it is, um, annoy or push me into a position whereby I'm going to play out what they know of their experience of, of authority. So yeah. they'll get you to play the perfect part repeating their old experience. Exactly. So then they think, they think, okay, you know what? There you go. It's just confirmed itself all over again. All authority figures are bad, blah, 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 all that sort of thing. And my specialty is couples, and we do this with our spouses all the time. <laughs> we will corner them into replaying stuff so we can mm -hmm. confirm that it's true. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Hey, I'm curious, because I don't, I don't know, you're a longtime grower, and we were joking before we started recording that mm -hmm. you're kind of growing all the time. Did you have ahas writing this book, like even in the process of doing the research and getting it down? And if so, what were they? Like things that oh, you didn't think before. Well, I think one of the, what, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. There are loads of aha moments, which I think have ended up in the book, things like understanding systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think, I think as psychotherapists, we've tended to lean outside of um, psychotherapy and psychology to actually try and understand what racism, sexism and homophobia, what these sorts of terms really are and how they, and how they, um, how they form and how they impact on, e on each one of us. And I think one of the aha moments that came out of the research was recognizing actually these are relational constructs. So things like um, yeah, racism, let's just go with that one, for example. Often on trainings, it's, it's okay, let's just bring in somebody of color to talk about race and so on, blah, blah, blah. But then what often happens is the unconscious is activated within white spaces, for example, and then there's something which plays itself out, which then led me to think, well, hang on, race was never a singular construct, a bit like gender. De Beauvoir talks about gender as being uh, created by, by men in order to, to, to identify themselves against. Race is a similar construct. So therefore they're relational, they're tied together. Mm. So if you're gonna work with race as in blackness, you also have to work with the impact on whiteness at the same time. Because you're, 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 you're changing the dynamic of both identities, both uh, egoic structures in even exploring them. So we have to define gender and race so we can define ourselves. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, yeah, on one Why? level, yes. Why? Why psychologically? I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah. yeah, I can 
pull some things from your book, but I want to hear it from you. I mean, it's, sure, sure. It's one of those. There's probably a, a, a book even in that question. Why? Why do we actually choose to do this? Um, and I think what what happens is this. There's like a psychological need to uh, repress parts of ourselves. There's a, this like ultimately we're, we're quite self-centered and narcissistic in, in a way. We all are. We all have it. It's yeah. Narcissism is not just a, a gendered sort of way of being. It's a developmental stage. We all go through it. And as we form a sense of identity, prejudice becomes the route by which we actually marginalize parts of ourselves. Um, Jean Piaget talked about this 100 years ago. So there's nothing new to some of this material. So the thing about prejudice, it can then become sexism, racism, whatever else, in the hardening of an egoic structure, mm-hmm. that makes sense. So that basically, it's, it, our identity is formed at, at an early age by what we are not, as well as what we are. And then we fight tooth and nail, our egos fight tooth and nail to maintain that sense of self. Now we talked, we talked about earlier on about the constant growth that we go through as therapists, we're doing our therapy and therapy, whatever else. This is where we're quite lucky in a way, because then we're, we're forced to cross those, those bridges toward, yeah, to, um, which, which brings into contact with the other, external and internal. Lacan got that and the internal other, and actually start to reintegrate and move beyond those internalized and externalized prejudices to actually recognize actually we are a far bigger creature than the one we created as a child. Yeah, yeah. When I was reading your book, I mean, the section that I, I was really geeking out on was the, I can't remember how you, the de- I call it the death in- instinct section, where our fear, <laughs> our fear of dying has us do all kinds of really weird sh- stuff. Sorry, I almost cursed. We won't won't uh, up our game if I curse, so I have to keep it buttoned up. But I, it really resonated with me. And on, I'll tell you first. I'll share a story. I had an experience sitting on the sidewalk where something about this really came out for me. When you know, in San Francisco, I ex- we have a lot of homelessness. And when I was in London um, a few months ago, yeah. we don't have as many homeless folks as we do in San Francisco. Wow. And all I could think about was, okay, there's a reason why we're creating homeless folks. There's a reason psychologically that I need to have somebody disgusting to me, because we know that the brain is disgusted by addicts and homeless folks. There's some interest, you know, brain research that shows that we get a disgust response so that I don't actually have to know about those parts of me. I have a place to put them. I don't have to know about the disgustingness inside of me or the things that I would deem disgusting. Hmm. And this is, feels very resonant to what you just said, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. If we're always needing to do that, though, how do we create justice then? I think it's a very good question. How do we create justice? How do we actually create some sort of equality and, and so on? These are, these are big topic areas. And it is about them being with the... It, it's Dr. Turner, just solve all the world's problems, please, I for us right now. <laughs> Dwight. <laughs> but I think, well, it's a good question. There is something about, let me come back to the disgust of ourselves. Mm. Whatever it is that we see, that we that we place onto that homeless person on the street, um, it's not of them, it's of ourselves. I don't know what their story is. Mm-hmm. I can fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. I can fantasize that they're an addict or, or that they, I, I don't know, that they, they've had mental health problems or whatever else. Um, one of the brilliant things about being a therapist is that I'm then charged with or challenged with meeting a whole range of people. I've worked with people who are homeless. I've worked with other minorities. And yes, at times it's been a challenge, a psychological one for myself. 
But where we're lucky is that with our own therapy and supervision and so on, then we're challenged to actually, again, what is it within myself I don't like in that other person? Or that I perceive that I don't like in the other person that actually probably doesn't have nothing to do with them at all. One of the things I try and do, I used to try and do, I haven't done it so much recently because we haven't been out for months, um, is if somebody, I remember once walking down the street in London, there was a homeless person playing a, a, a song on a flute. And actually, part of me was disgusted because they're a homeless person on the street, but part of me is just mesmerized by the song that they're playing. And actually, I stopped with a, a former girlfriend at the time. I stopped in the street, went back and asked them what the tune was, and we had a brief chat. In that moment, I learned something else. So I'm able to put aside my disgust and dehumanization of that person in order to engage with the sense of beauty and humanity that was actually just there. Mm. That makes sense. So the chance to learn something more from difference, if we can move beyond things like disgust or shame or rage or whatever it might be that we've been taught. We often talk culturally, okay, you know what, they're on the streets, you don't talk to them, they're disgusting, or they're of colour, you don't talk to them, whatever it might be, or all, all sorts of things. Yeah, it's funny. I wasn't thinking of sharing this, but my kids are teens now, so they're all about individuating. So they're yeah. kind of little yeah. jerks sometimes to me. But, um, and I need to learn to share power a little better. Uh, but I've taken them out on the sidewalk with me, listening. And mm. one of the things that we used to volunteer at, and we don't do this whole, we're rescuing people on the sidewalk. We very much show up with the intention of honoring people as equals. So it's a different vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they distance themselves from psychotherapy and, oh God, mom's going to make us talk about feelings. They told me they went and got lunch last week. And they said, I said, oh yeah, how was lunch? And I said, oh, it's good. Um, there was a homeless man. Mm. I said, oh, okay, cool. Why are you telling me about this homeless man? I said, oh, well, we invited him to have lunch with us. And he sat down and we fed him and oh. we hung out with him. Mm. Oh, you guys have been influenced by me. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even think anything of it. Like, they story, yeah. have this kind of easy, not weird response to folks who live mm -hmm. on the street because of that experience going out and listening with me. So mm. it's... But I think one wonderful thing about that story is it shows the role of parents in facilitating that sort of experience for kids. Mm. I think kids can, you know, kids, like in the, you know, in the UK, we have the Equalities Act and they have like, like nine protected characteristics, but children don't sit in boxes when they exclude. They exclude for all sorts of random reasons, like the colour of hair, person being too large, too short, whatever it might be. The fact that some parents play into that actually then reinforces those prejudices. Mm. And but also that sense of identity. What you're sort of what I'm hearing in, in your story, if you like, is you planted seeds of acceptance in your own kids. So therefore they're able to, it's not so onerous. They're not, they're not, they're less fearful. Um, their own identity isn't challenged by sitting with a homeless person. And they just try to, they try to do something um nice with another human being how brilliant is that it's brilliant and i've screwed them up in lots of other ways <laughs> <laughs> just want to be sure that for those that are listening uh you know i i'm curious what impact you're hoping you have with this book though because there's so many books that take up this topic right now but i imagine there was a compelling reason and and, and a hope a hope that you have that somebody picks this up and does something whether it's you know, a person that reads it, a therapist that reads it. Um, just yeah. curious about that. Well, this is one of the first books, I think, in psychotherapeutic terms, which brings in intersectional theory into the world of psychotherapy. That's, that's one of the things I think makes it stand out a bit more. And my hope for this book, and it's, it's, 
and yeah, even just sitting with yourself uh, this morning is, is a part of that. that is, the hope is that people then start to take it up and build on it. Yeah, I wrote, write it in the, in the afterward. Actually, this is just the first step to what I hope will be a larger exploration of how intersectional theory and ideas of identity and how power plays itself out within the self and within the dynamics with, with the other um, can be explored. Because we're talking about, we've tried to make difference, diversity, all these sort of, these sort of catchphrases. It's very simple. And actually it's not. And without recognizing the vast tapestry that we're all walking through it all the time within ourselves and outside of ourselves, we don't, we're not really gonna understand that. So what I hope is that in, in, in even just presenting these, what, 65,000 words, if I remember rightly, um, that it, it starts people on a longer journey that, you know, I'll be long gone by the time it, become, it becomes really, you know, it really blossoms into anything, if at all. Um, my hope is just that it, 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 it touches on a few people's lives along the way. And that's all, that would be my honor. I, I can really feel that. And I'll tell you, I, I've been reading books about diversity. I think that this whole um, sidewalk talk event really started for me. I mean, the first instinct was gun violence in the United States and I was gonna do it one time. And then yeah. I remember walking down the street in San Francisco and the Trayvon Martin verdict came out Trayvon Martin was a young black boy. Mm. He was a child mm. who mm. was shot just because he was black and his mm. killers did not get convicted. Mm. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna have to keep listening on the sidewalk. Mm. Um, but the reason why is because I actually found social justice language to be incredibly oppressive mm. in yeah. San Francisco. And I was so, I come from a fundamentalist religious background and social justice language started to feel like my fundamentalist upbringing. And it was everything that rebels against fundamentalism started to come up. And I'm like, well, this is the way I'm going to do social justice work is I'm going to sit on sidewalks and listen to people. And what I love about your book is it's not fundamentalist. There's something about the way that you write that feels well, I'll tell you my experience as I was reading it. Please. It ignited a soulful response. And it ignited me to ask questions, not feel shamed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It ignited me to explore my insides more and the outsides more from a vastly different lens rather than it it didn't close the space. It opened the space. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was my experience. Yeah. And I didn't feel like you, you know, do you ever read those books where you're like, oh man, this person's just trying to prove how smart they are. <laughs> and you, the whole book is one long egoic, like intellectual mind numbing dance. And I'm like, but you didn't write that. This is not about you. It was clear. It's like, this is what I'm passionate about. So I could really join you in, in the, in the dance, in the song, mm-hmm. if you will. So thank you for that. I want to say thank you for that. That's why I'm so excited. Yeah. My pleasure. And I think you make, you make a very good point. You know, we talk about, the wonderful Stuart Hall talks about this uh, in, you know, from the UK, and he's fairly big in the States as well. Um, and he writes about, you know, the political left and right, you know, they're, they're very ideologically based in, in many ways. And sometimes, I think, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, they talked about the left being perhaps as difficult, as insidious as the right. Perhaps even more so, because actually you don't always know what's coming in from the left. And there's that, there can be that sense in a way of, of feeling very silenced by the messages of the left 
shamed into, okay, you've got to repress whatever it is that you're feeling, whatever. All that, all that happens there is the right then acts out further down the line. We've seen it in you know, American politics, the British politics over the past, what, 10 years, you know, 2012 Olympics, post-racial society. Here we are, what, seven, eight years later, uh, nine years later, we're outside of the EU, we have all sorts of problems and you know, we have a conservative government that's gone so very um, right-wing that we, you know, half of us don't know what we're doing, to be honest. And probably the same in some ways in the US. I think what, what I hear in that is, it, what you're saying is actually is a very important point in that any drive towards understanding difference, otherness, privilege, has to come from a more moral and ethical and soul-like place within oneself. And there are theorists or activists who are very able to do this. You know, I talk about in some of my lectures, Sylvia Pankhurst, the daughter of Emmeline Pankhurst. Now, Emmeline, brilliant woman, did her bit for women's rights and so on, totally understand where she was coming from. Sylvia, though, went to a different level in a way, because she did a lot of work around workers' rights in the UK. She visited the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm sure it would have been called the Soviet Union at the time. Yeah, in the times of Stalin and tried to help out those dissidents who, who were over there, some, many of whom lost their lives subsequently. But my favorite, whenever I tell the story, let's present one picture where she stood next to Haile Selassie, the, for, the former emperor of Ethiopia, who was in um, exile in the UK because she encouraged the British government to bring him in. She used her sense of privilege to actually help those people who she saw as disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. That for me is an ethical imperative. And often we're, we're so disconnected from that. You know, the, the, the home, we're going to tell that story again, the, the urge to actually ethically see somebody in need and help that person out just for a few minutes is huge. We do it as therapists. We can do it as a, as, as a culture if we're able to do so. And I've tried to write the book from that deeper ethical standpoint. Mm -hmm. Show the pitfalls, of course, but try and show that tension of opposites mm -hmm. that from within, from the, from the space in between, is that, you know, you haven't talked about the, you know, the opposites in, in, in many ways. And so does Martin Buber, the idea that from if you can hold those, those opposites and something creative comes out of the middle, if you're willing to go down that route. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Man, you're going to do a podcast someday so I can just listen to you all the time? <laughs> you know, I have thought about it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do this yet. So, yeah. Well, if well, I when, ever you, do, when you do, you come, you know, come and I'll help you set it up. I know all the back end stuff, so I can oh, make it easy stuff. for you. <laughs> Um, yeah, and there's software besides Zoom now that you can use. It's much better. So I've learned all the mistakes. I'll just teach you what not to do. You know what I mean? Um, hey, so the other thing I was thinking about when I was reading your book was this idea of, look, if we're all afraid of dying, right, and then we all have to other because mm -hmm. when difference actually makes us think of dying, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really being reductionistic, right? Yeah, sorry. Um, and that one of the, what was, what, I, I'm sorry, I have to take some notes, the notes from your book. You said something, I, let me be messy here. You talked about, there was a quote in one of your sections, you talked about the difference between being adapted versus being integrated. Yes, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. and that adapting to society can feel like death because we have mm -hmm. to repress whole aspects mm -hmm. of ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. I can't just go fart on the bus. Well, I guess I could fart on the bus, but they'd probably kick me off, you know? Mm -hmm. They're like, why is this girl mm -hmm. farting on the bus? Um, at the same time, though, the question that came up in this section was, okay, yes, and social contract theory, vaccines, COVID, like, I don't want to adapt, I don't want to get a vaccination. 
Mm, that's mm, not mm. actually my stance. I am going to get mm, vaccinated, mm. but but there's a lot of folks that have this, and a lot of therapists in the UK actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've noticed. Are yes. really anti-vaccine mm, and mm. Uh, anti-mask wearing. Some of them. Mm. Uh, when does where do we find this balance between being individuated whole selves where mm-hmm. we get to be authentic, mm-hmm. but that it harms living socially versus living socially. And we feel like we're dying because we can't be our authentic selves. Do you get my question or am I being I too? Totally okay. question. So I think there's a stage, again, there's a stage in between. I've had my vaccine a couple of weeks back and it's, yeah, it's, I'm again, like yourself, I don't mind wearing a mask. Um, being ex-military, you sort of learn how to follow orders to a certain degree, but it's it's not always the yeah, I left. So there's another side to that story as well. Um, I think there's a balancing act between duty to oneself mm. and duty to those around you. Mm-hmm. And um, Jung, for all his problems, because you know he wasn't you know, he had his own prejudices and so on, he did get one or two things right in my view. The idea that the more individuated you become the closer the political and therefore the other comes towards you. So your duty of care towards the other starts to move more into focus. That's very different to making you go egoic sort of pitch of, well, I'm not gonna do this because I'm gonna ignore all the science and all the stats and just take my own route and say, okay, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not having a vaccine. If somebody wants to do that, that's, that's fine, that's their choice. But being aware that they're actually putting at risk themselves and others around them, that's mm-hmm. also part of that decision. I think. The thing about the, the, the death, the, the chapter on death is, is a difference between making the stance that, you know, we all have to learn to, to adapt to a new way of being. Those people who perhaps, in one way of looking at this, those people who, who perhaps don't want to do that, who want to hang on to the past, we saw it with the Brexit vote, for example, um, are very wedded to an egoic structure of identity that they just don't want to let go of. You know, identity is not a fixed point. You can't just put a flag in the sand and say, this is who I am. We try to do it all the time, but time goes on. Life changes. Things come up. Fate takes a hand. We're constantly evolving all the time, whether we want to or not. This pandemic, if you like, James Hollis was uh, was talking about on a podcast the other day that I was listening to. He recognized that actually, for many of us, we're going through a real sort of shadow, looking at our shadow material during this lockdown. And therefore, we must come out transformed. Those, there are, but, but like any sort of process of transformation, there are going to be defences. There are going to be people who actually don't want to go down, down that route because for whatever reason. They're going to deny that they have to wear a mask. They're going to deny that this thing even exists, even with millions around the world having died and so on. They just don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. That's their choice. Um, and that's fine. I think the fallout from some of this will become apparent in the next five years when once we've exited some of this because I think then we'll see what's left uh, of the world that we used to have so let me let me re- restate some of to make sure I got what you said correctly oh, sure. so what I hear you saying is that you know kind of rooted in some of Jung's ideas that Jung's ideas mm-hmm. um, that the more whole that we become the less we have to project onto other people and make them bad Mm-hmm. And the less we have to project onto other people, the more willing we are to care about other people. Yeah, because they're human beings. The projection human. is a form of dehumanization, ultimately. As mm-hmm. therapists, we accept the projection, knowing that we can maintain our human sense of self beyond the therapy, beyond the therapy's mm-hmm. relationship. 
But when we project onto others, we dehumanize and make them less than in, in many different ways. And, and, then yeah, we, so, and then we can't care about them. Then we can't pass policies that care about people. Yeah. Because it, it, yeah. the more, so I want to make sure that for those that are listening, I think what you're saying is our inner work and embracing all the parts of ourselves mm-hmm. allows us to care more yeah. about humanity. Totally. Inner work to embrace all the parts of ourselves, the good yeah. ones. I'm just getting ready to start a shadow workshop on myself <laughs> for me, for my growth, yeah. uh, because it'll help And that work. And this is why I think, you know, f- when people say, oh, psychotherapy is good for the world. This is that state. This is that yeah. that moment yeah. where it is yeah. the more yeah. that you embrace about yourself. Mm. the more likely likely you are to care about other people. Okay, but now this thought just popped in my head, so now I'm going to rip with it. But what about that whole pretending to care about other people, the savior complex, so that I don't actually have to know about parts of myself? It yeah, looks yeah. like I'm caring about other people, yeah. but I'm still just doing the same old stuff. Oh, we've seen all those pictures and people who travel off, you know, students traveling off to disadvantaged countries to go and help out and build a hut somewhere and feel good about themselves and come home and people are there like, well, what's all that about? They, you know, they just stayed a couple of weeks. So we don't know anything more about that. Yeah. It's, again, it's not about an individuation. That's about, a, this is where narcissism and the idea of, um, I love the story of Icarus. The idea that actually the, 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 there's that sense of trying to fly too close to the sun. And I think this is where that, that denial of death comes in. It, it gives somebody a real sense of life, of power, of um, supremacy. That's the next book, probably. The idea that actually, then I, you know, I get to lord it over whoever it is um, by having served my, you know, served my country, served the, these people who, who need me. You know, if I use a very sort of popular example, perhaps a bit, bit reductionist, the number of hero films and movies that we all tend to watch all the time is a perfect example of, of that. It's normally white men who've come out to save the world from the latest great threat, whatever else, and the damsel in distress screams alongside and the person of color dies partway through, all those sorts of things. Um, the hero complex is very much embedded in our culture. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, I love an Avengers movie like anybody else. I love them to bits. I will read the story, but the ones that I'm most drawn to are the stories whereby those characters go through hell, first mm-hmm. of all, and then come out the other end with a slightly more humble way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. that they really are transformed exactly exactly but that's yeah. got to come from within and the only other thing i would add about death as well is is in those you know in the other it's the other side it's about being the other and and having to hold the projections in order to hold them we also have to kill off parts of ourselves and i talk about that a fair amount in the book we experience another type of death in that you, the, the, you know, we can't be authentically ourselves and that mm-hmm. sort of comes back to your earlier statement about um Adaptation, it's Paolo Ferrer. I was going to pronounce his name, but I must apologize for that. Um, who writes about the adapted self as being something, like a form of dehumanization. And he's right. We kill off our humanity to accept some of this when it's unexpected. Oh, when it's unexpected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When it's unexpected, or when it's forced upon us. That's the protective identification. We're not a choice with it. Yeah. yeah. It's like when, when kids are bullied at school and then the kid folds it in on themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there's a death of a sense of self that goes with that and often it's a way of trying to just trying to survive the everyday the brutal everyday environments that they're walking through yeah. and some types of schooling boarding schools yes i'm going to call them out straight away that's you know it, it's built into the system 
that hot housing whereby you actually you have to adapt to a way of being which is pre prescribed but any sort of true authenticity gets lost in the annals of or, you know the, the the maze of the unconscious somewhere yeah 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 i can talk to you i'm going to ask you one more question and we'll wrap up sure. um okay i might be a little soapboxy on this one <laughs> go so, for it go. i'm a white woman mm -hmm. you're a black man we have all these intersectional touch points between us mm -hmm. okay there there's one piece that's always made me struggle as a, as a therapist, which is how much we blame mothers for everything that's wrong with society. Because she didn't attune to that infant. So somehow, the, I mean, I get that we blame fathers too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what your book made me wonder about was, is it possible that psychotherapy participates in upholding sometimes this oppressive othering because if we can blame mothers and parents then the society doesn't have to look at itself i don't know where i'm it's so broad what i'm saying but I, that's just what i thought about them and I, and then i'm like yeah but then tracy how do you get how do you get society to look at itself but start with the with the people in it you know mm -hmm. no, i know what you're getting this is there are two roots i can see two roots there's we can blame parents all we want to, but it's ultimately, you know, it's, this is our internalized experience of said parent. Um, so that's, you know, that's what we would do as therapists. We work with the internalization of, 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 of those experiences. Uh, I don't think, I do think, I, I do agree with you because I think society then plays a role because we're also molded by societal expectations of how we're supposed to be be it through our parents or through how we interact with the wider world, how I am as a black man, when I go out into the streets as a, as a kid, I'm often told you know, how to perform and how to act in order not to appear too aggressive or, or too, too overt. I was into a Brenny Brown podcast and she was often taught as a child, okay, you can't, she was, used to play with the boys and do all, all, sorts, all sorts of, you know, boy-like things. And she was told by her parents, were often told by, by culture, actually, you've got to be more girly and stay in the kitchen or whatever else. And Brenny Brown is hugely successful. She obviously rebelled against lots of that. I, you, we can't divorce culture from family, is my view. Um, and it always comes into the room. This is things like, um, if I'm working with, with disadvantaged communities, then the political is there anyway, and that's come in from, from the culture. So if somebody can't afford to pay for, you know, a, you know, a full fee paying therapist because they're on benefits, or whatever else, then that work material is there for me to work with. What can we provide them with? How does that leave them feel? What, what, you know, what's, what do they need in a way? Whatever question might come up. So I don't think, I think you're making a very good point. It's more of a general point as well as a question. I think the two go hand in hand, the family and the culture. I don't think you can separate one from the other. I, sometimes I do agree with you. Sometimes psychotherapists try to separate them out. And that's why I get a bit annoyed with therapists who say that the political doesn't exist within psychotherapy. It's there all the time. Culture is there all the time. Yeah, for sure. Oh, this was so fun. And you know, you just... You just did a little sell job for therapists because you just basically demonstrated we're doing a heck of a lot more than just CBT thought records when we're coming in to meet with you. <laughs> we're thinking about what part of you we're a stand-in for, 
Mm-hmm. We're um, tracking our body going, man, I'm feeling some weird stuff and I don't think it's mine. And then sometimes we're getting really annoyed and we're like, is that annoyance my stuff from my past or is that annoyance the client stuff? Yeah. I mean, you just helped everyone understand that there's a heck of a lot more going on. All right. We have a tradition for how we wrap up our, our podcast conversation here. Okay. Um, I mentioned it in the thing, but don't, don't you're not put on the spot. It's, it'll be fun. The tradition is that I just get out of the way and those 8,000 folks around the world that listen on sidewalks, you get to speak to them without me as an interlocutor, so to speak, right? Mm. Any words of wisdom or a wish? So you can say whatever you want, words of wisdom or wish to those oh, listeners what? all over the world. I that. Oh, okay, you know what, my wish, I think given what we've talked about, my, my wish for, for anyone who's listening to this podcast is that take a few minutes, sit, think, what when you what one or two things can you do that will benefit somebody else that you meet today? Just one thing. I don't. You know, we we, you know, we talked about homeless people on, on so it could be anyone who's in need. It could be somebody who's just tripped over in the street. Somebody who hasn't got enough money to pay for their groceries. Some whatever it might be. You know, what are you called to do? And like the butterfly effect, that one small thing hopefully will lead to something else. And I often believe in the in the, in the Somebody wants to tell me a story about a woman who couldn't, she was getting married in Egypt, she couldn't afford her wedding, but her friends who were Egyptians, they paid for the wedding for her. And when she wanted to pay them back, they said, actually, you know what, don't pay, pay us back, pay it forward. So what she did when a, 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 le- a lovely lesbian couple, who I know, funny enough, came out and said they, they wanted to have, have their marriage, marriage somewhere and they didn't have the money to pay for it. She remembered what she'd been given years beforehand and paid for their wedding and told them, pay it forward. And I think things like that and the generosity of spirit that goes with that and the trust and everything else, that's the sort, these are sorts of things that we can do for each other. Mm-hmm. If I have a purely personal wish, I'm going to be slightly selfish, buy the book. Buy the book, read it, give it to somebody else, let them read it too, and let's see where this goes. You know, it's only been out a couple of weeks by the time I've recorded this. Let's see where this goes from here. Yeah. And good luck to it. We have a racism listening circle at Sidewalk Talk, so maybe we'll take this one up. So here's the little book. Uh, The book is called Intersections of Privilege and Otherness in Counseling and Psychotherapy, but it's not just for counselors and psychotherapists, for sure. Um, It's accessible. It's poetic. It's soulful. It's non-shaming. And it'll it'll open your lens, not shrink it, for sure. And... uh, you can find out all the information are going to be in the show notes yep. on the blog. So lots of links to it. And I'm really excited to celebrate this work. Congratulations on the birth of your new baby. Thank you very Actually. much. Thank yes. You. It's a big deal. All right. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Dr. Turner. It's great to meet you. Thank you very much. Love to meet you as well. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.